All right, we are in the book of Luke. We're going to be finishing up chapter 5 today, so you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Um, today uh, is a comparison between the old and the new. It's about what was and what will be. Uh, and really the point today is this, if you want to write it down and then you can tune out for the rest of the sermon, just kidding, uh, is Jesus can't please the religious but being religious can't please Jesus. Jesus cannot please the religious, but being religious will never please Jesus. And so we're going to look at a couple stories today. So let's look at it in Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27. Here's what he says. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, or Matthew, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Verse 33. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Let me pray. God, I thank you this morning that... The old is gone and the new has come. God, I thank you that we no longer have to strive, um, have to work, have to prove our, our righteousness or our goodness before you. Um, we all fall short. And so I thank you this morning that the old is gone. I thank you that the new that you brought is incompatible with the old, God. I pray this morning that if there are people here who base their relationship with you on what they have done for you or the good works that they have done or the fact that they haven't sinned in this amount of time or that amount of time, God. God, I pray this morning, God, that they would see that the new is so much better than the old. God, and I pray this morning that we would not be like the Pharisees. God, so consumed with our good works and our better than others. God, but that we would be like Jesus who comes and he loves the outsider and offers grace to all, even those who think of themselves as righteous. And so I pray this morning that as we study your word, God, you would apply it to our lives and that we would live and love people differently this week because of it. So we love you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, look at verse 27. Let's, let's read this first story again and then we'll, we'll talk about it. So after this, he went out, saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. 
And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So we start the story, and Jesus is, is out and about, and he's out and about in probably Jerusalem, most likely. Could, no, I think he's in Capernaum. And he's out and about, and he, he sees a man, and his name is Levi, or his name is Matthew. And it tells us that he was a tax collector. So tax collectors at this time were about as highly viewed as we view IRS agents today, uh, but probably much worse view in their day. Uh, tax collectors represented Rome, and they represented the oppression and the <laughs> taxation and the theft of Rome on them. Uh, the, the tax system was very burdensome for them. There were all kinds of different taxes that they had to pay uh, to Rome. And now, tax collectors were, were viewed negatively for a lot of reasons. One, because they were all thought to be robbers. There was no honest tax collector because this is how tax collectors got paid. They took stuff off the top. And so they took it out of your pocket to put it in theirs, right? But more than that, more than the extortion, they were viewed negatively because many of them were Jews who had sold out their people to go and work for Rome, right? So they're not only uh, robbers and thieves and extortioners, but they're like, your family sold you out, and now they're robbing you, extorting you, and stealing from you. Uh, tax collectors, Jewish tax collectors, were not allowed in the synagogue. They could not go to the gathering of the Jewish people. They were not allowed as witnesses in a jury trial or in a trial of any sort, right? Because why? Because they were viewed as liars, thieves, sellouts. These are not people, right? Not good people. And it tells us that Jesus walks up to this tax booth and he meets a man named Levi. Now, maybe he's had interaction. If you've, if you've seen The Chosen, then he's had a lot of interaction with this guy before this. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, but this Levi is the same Matthew that writes the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and he's famous to us. But at this point, he is a hated, despised man. And it tells us that he walks up, verse 27, and he said to him, follow me. A very simple uh, direction, a very simple command. Uh, but th and there's really no other detail given. If you read this story in Mark, it's exactly the same. If you read it in Matthew, there's, there's basically exactly the same. There's no added detail. And you would think Matthew, who was the one who had this command, would give us a little more. Jesus said this to me, or Jesus, this, this, and this. No, it's a simple command, follow me. All right? This was a very serious thing, and this was, this was a very formal way of, of, of a rabbi, of a teacher, inviting a student into a, a, a relationship, a discipling relationship. Follow me. Come walk with me. Come live with me. Come learn from me. Now, this is a a very simple command, but it's a very, very challenging command. Because what it meant for Matthew, for Levi, to follow him meant a little bit more than it did for other people maybe. Because he would have to give up his tax booth. He would have to sell out the Romans 
to go and follow Jesus. And if he sells out the Romans, he's also sold out his own people. He's literally giving up everything to go and follow Jesus. But, verse 28, what does it say? And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And it, it reminds me of the rich young ruler. You remember that story? Uh, where this young man comes to Jesus and, and he wants to know the way to eternal life. And he's asking him all these questions. And they have this interaction. And Jesus tells him, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to go sell everything and then come follow me. You're going to have to leave it all behind and come follow me. And the rich young ruler, it tells us that he left what? Sad. Because he had great possessions and he wasn't willing to give up what he had to go follow Jesus. But Levi is the exact opposite. Levi sees what Jesus has to offer and he compares it to what he has in his little tax booth. And he's probably rich. He's probably pretty wealthy from this. And he looks at Jesus and he looks at this and he looks at Jesus and he looks at this and he says, Jesus is worth it. And he leaves everything to follow Jesus. He is selling out Rome. He cannot go back. He has, like, John, Peter, these other guys who are fishermen, they could probably always go back to fish. Levi, he can't go back to his own people. He can't go back to his tax booth. He literally has given up everything to follow Jesus. Now, coincidentally, this is, this is true for each one of us. And we may not feel this as much because some of us make this decision at, at, at a young age, right? But if you made a decision to follow Jesus as an adult, it's a totally different thing than if you're teenager, right? Because you've lived a life that was for yourself. You've lived a life that was all about you. And to give that up to follow Jesus, man, I was, I was listening to, um, there's a country artist, his name is Granger Smith. Anybody know Granger Smith in the room? Oh, not very many, no hands. Never mind, Shane knows him. Uh, and he's leaving his country music fame and fortune to go to seminary and become a pastor. He just announced it this week, right? Uh, I was just thinking about him this week and, and, and Levi and what that meant for him and, and how difficult that is. But it's true for all, all of us. We don't have to be like Granger. We don't have to be like Levi and literally give up our wealth or give up whatever. But the call to follow Jesus, the call to a relationship with Jesus is immense. It's no small thing to say, Jesus is Lord, not me. It's no small thing to say, I'll follow you. I'll do what you say, not what I say. The only way you will do that, the only way I will do that, the only way anyone will do that is if we believe that what Jesus has to offer is worth more than what we already have. Right? We, we will not follow Jesus unless we believe that following him is worth more than what we already have. What holds us back from that? What keeps us from following Jesus? What stands in the way of us holding on to our stuff or our position or our, our whatever? What, what keeps us from following Jesus? Look at verse 29. It says, And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. So Levi, Matthew, he makes this decision to follow Jesus, and his natural instinct is to throw a party, right? He's pumped. He's excited about this, and this is, this is a big step in his life. And so he gives a feast, right? So we know he's got some wealth. 
And he gives this feast in honor of Jesus. And he invites the only people that will come, which are who? Other tax collectors and other sinners, right? The other outcasts, the other outsiders. His family's not there because they've rejected him. The Romans aren't there because he's just a tool in their toolbox. The only people there are other tax collectors and sinners. Now, all these people come because they love Matthew. And they come, but Jesus is the guest of honor at this celebration. And they eat and they drink and they share this meal. Now, this is no small thing in their culture. This is probably true in our culture. We don't invite everybody to our table to eat dinner. But if you invite somebody in your house to your table to eat dinner, what does that say? That I love you. I care about you. You're my family. You're my friends. Now, Connie invites everybody to her house, so, you know, but everyone kind of is family to Connie. But, sorry, I saw y'all laughing over there. Uh, this is a big deal. And Jesus is showing that, that he doesn't care who he's associated with. He wants to be around the least desirable people. There, there's nothing that is boosting his clout or his fame by going to this banquet. In fact, it's probably tearing down his credibility. It's tearing down his reputation with those who appear to matter. But Jesus, if you've not noticed in Luke, is making this habit of associating with and being close to and interacting with the lepers, the outcast, the paralytic, the outcast, women who were not viewed well in this culture, sinners, tax collectors. These are his friends. These are the people that he's spending time with. Why? Well, I think it's because of what, what he's going to talk about here in a sec. The new thing that he's doing, grace, he knows what that will do in those people's lives. And so he is around these people because he knows what they can become. He knows what their future will be when they are restored and they are, they are worked in. And so Matthew throws this party. I love the instinct of Matthew that when he has this encounter with Jesus, his first thought is, I want my friends to know about this Jesus too, right? So, so he brings them all together. They eat and they drink and they celebrate. There's only one problem. That's where we enter verse 30. It says, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled or complained at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors? And sinners. Now, the Pharisees had been at the house that day, you remember recently, where Jesus healed the paralytic, and, and they didn't say anything out loud, but their hearts were grumbling, complaining, right? Remember? But on this day, they actually speak up, and they grumble and they complain that Jesus is associating with these kind of people. Oh, just small point, but listen to your words. If you're grumbling, what does it reveal? If you're complaining, what does it reveal? That your heart's not right, right? That something in, inside is wrong. And so something inside of these guys is wrong, that they're grumbling and complaining at what Jesus is doing. And their complaint is that he is eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. Now, at first, you may be able to justify this, right? We could quote a verse like, bad, corrupt, bad company corrupts good character, there might be, appear to be a little wisdom in this. Like, Jesus, if you hang out with these kind of people, you're going to become like these kind of people. And that sounds like, oh, that's good advice. That's wisdom. But in reality, they did not care about Jesus. They did not care about his company corrupting good character. 
They cared about staying away from that which they thought was unclean, that which they thought would hurt them or, or cause them to be unclean. It's unfathomable to these religious people that Jesus would associate with such sinners. And what does Jesus say? Look at verse 31. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus points out, like, doctors are not made for the healthy. Doctors are made for the sick. Physicians are there to help those who have the greatest need. That's who they go after. That's what a physician does. So he's calling himself a healer, a, a fixer, right? And I'm here. I'm not here for those who, who have it all together. I'm here for those who are broken. And he says, I have not come for the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. Now, we should read righteous as this. Righteous is not, I'm not here for those who have already figured it out. That's not what he means. Righteous should be understood, those who falsely think of themselves as righteous. And the Pharisees and the religious, this is how they think. They think that they have figured it out. They think that their good works, their actions, their their rule-keeping, their commandments, all this stuff has made them right with God, and they have no need of someone to come and fix them. They think they have it all together. The Pharisees don't view themselves as sick. They view themselves as healthy. They don't view themselves as broken. They view themselves as put together. And Jesus said, I did not come for those people. I came for those who know their need. Now, coincidentally, this is every religion in the world's effort is no different than the Pharisees. Every religion in the world is how can we get to God? What can I do to get to God? Right? Buddhists, they, they, they're trying to get to nirvana by following the eightfold path, by doing these things, by finding inner peace. Muslims are trying to get to paradise by following the five pillars of Islam, doing these things, going, on the Mecca, going to Mecca, praying five times a day, all these things, doing something. Mormons are trying to become gods or God-like through their baptism, their involvement in the Mormon church, through following Joseph Smith's teaching, through all kinds of other weird stuff that I won't say right now. Jehovah's Witness are trying to find everlasting life through, through, through being good people and through door-to-door evangelizing. And the more of that that they do, the better they feel sure that they are right with God. Roman Catholics are trying to find salvation by taking Mass, participating in the sacraments, doing prayers, going to confession, uh, practicing penance, maybe having to go to purgatory. All these things are their effort to earn their way and their standing before God. And the Pharisees thought, if we just put enough rules and regulations, then we too can be clean. We can be righteous. We can be healthy. And all of these fall short of what it takes. Because no one is righteous. In in Matthew's account, when he tells this story, he quotes Jesus, where he quotes uh, Hosea where he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I want your love, not your good deeds. I want your heart, not just the externals. 
Jesus is coming and he's not about the old, which was trying to earn your way, trying to work your way, trying to be good and righteous and perfect. That's not what Jesus is about. He's coming and bringing grace and forgiveness. Look at verse 32. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, what Jesus was being uh, blasted for by these people is that he was hanging out with them, which we, uh, we kind of take this leap in our mind and we go, if you hang out with somebody, you become like them. If you're with somebody, you do the things that they do, right? And so in essence, they're saying, Jesus, you're going to be a sinner just like these people. But notice what Jesus says. He doesn't say that I have just come to call the sinners, I've come to love the sinners. What does it say? I've come to call the sinners to what? Repentance, right? So Jesus' love for the outsider is not just this unconditional, like, I just want to hang out with you, be with you as you eat and get drunk. I, I want to just be with you as you sleep with prostitutes. I just want to be with you as you do all these terrible things. That's not Jesus. What does he say? I have come to call sinners to what? To repentance. He's not just meeting them where they're at so that they can just kind of stay there and feel good about themselves. Jesus is not just accepting them for who they are but, and just leaving them there. No, no, no. He's saying, I've come to call them to repentance. But the only way he can call them to repentance is if he has a relationship with them. And so he comes to these people and he spends time with these people and he points them to the better way, to the new way which is repentance, not rules. It's turning from your sin, not following more rules. It's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay there. I've heard a lot of preachers say this, so this is not original to me. It's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay there. And that's Jesus' heart right here. He's coming to build relationships with these outsiders so that he can call them into the kingdom, so that he can call them out of that. Now, before we move on to the, the part about fasting, how are we like the Pharisees? How do we isolate ourselves from those who are unclean? <laughs> we don't have these exact categories in our culture, but we all can place people in these boxes of unclean, of sinners, of, of, of the outsiders. How do we put barriers as a church as individuals in this church between us and those who we perceive as sinners. If this is God's heart, if this is Jesus' heart, then this should be our heart, right? That we love those who are outside, but we don't let them stay there. We don't affirm every decision they make as good and right and morally just. We call them to repentance, to turn from the way that they're living to something new, to let Jesus change their life. Look at the next story, verse 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. That's, so, so they... <laughs> Again, Jesus can't please these people. He cannot please the, the religious. They're mad at him for what he does, and they're mad at him for what he doesn't do, right? This is just, he cannot please them. But Jesus is about to show them that they, in their being religious, cannot please 
him which matters more. And so they're complaining that his disciples don't fast. Now, I had to go look at this this week, and I found this very interesting. The Old Testament uh, only commands, in God's word, one fast. There's one fast that the people of Israel were supposed to do around the Day of Atonement, their big day of sacrifice in the temple. There are other times that they called the nation to fast, but really God only commanded them to fast one time. But the Pharisees had made this, this set of rules and regulations that what they did is they forced people to fast two times per week, Mondays and Thursdays. And so if you did not fast Mondays and Thursdays, if you're seen eating and drinking on Mondays and Thursdays, then in their mind, they're better than you, right? They've created this whole system where they're fasting multiple days a week. And, and they made a show of it. They would mourn and publicly, they would, I don't, I don't know what that was. They, they changed their appearance. They looked sad. They looked disheveled. They, 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 they made themselves appear that they were doing something hard. Because why? Because it was just about appearance. It was about having other people view them as very godly or very broken or whatever. They made this show of it. And, and they, they bring this claim that, that Jesus is not following their fast. He's not claiming that he's not following the Day of Atonement fast. He's, he's, they're claiming that Jesus is not and his disciples are not following the, the twice a week fast. And this is the beginning of Jesus being labeled a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus comes back at them. And he's going to show them that their religiosity, their being religious will never please him. Look at verse 34. He says, and Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. So Jesus is referencing their wedding traditions, and their wedding was a, a, a different deal than ours, uh, different traditions, but theirs would typically go on for a week, right? And if you were in the wedding party, then you were there for the whole week. You were a part of the whole thing, feasting, celebrating, dancing, all this stuff. And the Pharisees had made an exception that if you were a part of the wedding, you didn't have to fast Monday and Thursday. How nice of them, right? How great. Just such upstanding people, right? And Jesus is referencing this. He says, you don't make people who are in a wedding fast twice a week. Why? Because the groom is there with them. It's a time of celebration. Now, Jesus is pointing to something very earthly, but he's really pointing to something spiritual, right? He's calling himself the groom. Now, they don't see that yet. But he says, the day will come when the, when the wedding is over, the groom will leave and everybody else will go back to fasting. And he's making a point that one day he's going to be gone. The day will come when he is not with them and there will be a time for fasting. But now is not that time. And he goes on, he tells them a parable. Look at verse 36. A parable is just uh, a story, a made-up story or a, a wise saying that's teaching them a point. And here's, here's what he says. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new. And the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. 
What is the point Jesus is making by telling these three little parables? The old is incompatible with the new. There is no mixing. There is no fellowship or partnership or relationship of the old with the new. It is two separate things that cannot coexist. And he gives a couple stories, right? So we, don't, we have pre-shrunk clothing typically. But, we don't, but if you put a patch of new clothing on a, patch of, on, a, on a garment that's old, the old has already shrunk, the new has not shrunk, and when it shrinks, it will tear. It is incompatible, the new with the old. It doesn't match, it doesn't fit, it doesn't stay together. Uh, wine and wineskins, we don't <laughs> keep our wine and wineskins, right? But, but these wineskins, these bladders would, would swell and, and soak up wine as they were put, uh, as wine was put into them as it fermented. And now if you put new wine into old wineskins that have already stretched, they try to stretch again and they burst. The new is incompatible with the old. They can't be mixed. They don't work together. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying your old way, Pharisees, of rule keeping and regulations does not mix with the new thing that I'm bringing, which is grace and truth. The old way was about ritual. The new way is about repentance. The old way was about outward expressions. It was about the doing. The new way is about the heart. It's about the being, right? The old way was about rules and regulations. The new way is about grace and truth. The old way was about earning your way to God, proving your worth, proving why you were clean or good or right. But the new way is about Jesus doing that for us because we cannot do it ourselves. The old way was about the outside a new way is about the heart. These two are incompatible. They cannot be mixed. How do we do this today? And we look at our lives, and by all measures, if you're here the Sunday after Easter, you're pretty religious. You're pretty good at showing up to church. Probably you're giving money. Probably you're serving in the church. Probably you're, you're doing the right, good things. But if our standing before God this morning is whether we showed up or whether we gave money or whether we helped that lady or whether we did this or that or that, our resume of good works, if that's what it is, then you've missed it. You're trying to operate in the old way. But the new way is about grace and truth, that we cannot keep the rules, that we cannot be perfect. Only Jesus could. Look at verse 39. This is the saddest part. It says, And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. It's confusing at first, but what Jesus is saying is this. We get really comfortable with what we know. And these Pharisees are very comfortable with keeping the rules, being good people, uh, having a, a standard of righteousness that's external. It's good to them. Why would I try something new? That's what he's saying. You get so familiar with this old that, that you don't even want to try something new. And what he's saying is so sad because Jesus is pointing out, you Pharisees, you religious, are so comfortable in that that you will not even give grace and truth a chance. You won't even give a thought to that following Jesus might be worth leaving it all behind. C.S. Lewis famously wrote in his book, I can't remember what book this is from, 
But here's the quote. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. It's like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. The Pharisees are far too easily pleased with their rules and their regulations and their, their all that. And they can't imagine what is being offered by the offer of grace and truth, forgiveness, mercy, not sacrifice. And so the question today is, are you living in the old? Are you living in the new? Are you trying to earn your way to God, proving to him that you're worthy, that you're good, that you're lovable? Or are you submitting to the fact that you're not and that God loves you still? He doesn't want to leave you there. But this is so much better. Grace and truth is so much better than rules and regulations. Repentance is better than ritual. The heart is better than outward. Jesus is better than you trying to earn your way to God. If you don't know about grace, if you don't know about truth, I would love to point you to Jesus today. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you love us. God, we are not, those of us who are in Christ are the tax collectors in the story. God, the outsiders, the broken, the needy. And you loved us so much that you sent Jesus to come get us. And you loved us so much that you wouldn't leave us in our sin, God, but you would call us to repentance, God. And so I thank you for those this morning that are in Christ. I pray for, for us that we have a heart that wants to go back to the old, to the familiar, to the comfortable of trying to earn our way, trying to prove ourselves, trying to keep all the rules and regulations of what it means to be a good Christian. God, I pray that you would keep us from that. Keep us from that temptation to try to prove our worth, God. Help us to rest in Christ and Him alone. God, we love you. We thank you for grace this morning. We thank you that you loved outsiders like us. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.